0: Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is great to see you this morning, and if you are visiting us for the very first time, let me extend to you a personal welcome to you here, Grace. My name is Nathan, and I hope you do sit back and relax and enjoy your Sunday morning. If you brought your Bible, would you please turn to it to two places today, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the foundation of this series, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and stick your finger in Acts 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3, stick your finger in Acts 6, we'll get there in a little bit. If you didn't bring your Bible and you're using your phone, just <laughs> uh, you can't turn to 2. Just go to 1 Timothy 3, and if you're still trying to figure out how to do that, type in 1 Timothy and the number 3, 1, the name Timothy, the number 3. It'll take you to a link where then you can uh, click on it and follow along with us today in 1 Timothy. We're in the series that is about the biblical core construction of a church. Every human being has like a core construction. It's called our DNA. It, it's what makes us humans. If your DNA got left somewhere, they could tell that it was human DNA versus a cupcake DNA, you know? <laughs> so, every person has DNA. Now, there's a lot of diversity in that, and the same is true with churches. That There are some biblical core Aspects to what makes a church a church—the the why we do what we do sort of things. What makes a church different than a Christian nonprofit organization? What makes a church different than the Lions Club? What makes a church different than um, a, a an affinity group? We just happen to like Jesus together, and so we're just a hobby group that meets together. What makes a church? a church. And so that's the point of this entire series. Now, most likely, you have been to a different church other than Grace Community Church. Shame on you, but you have. All right? And maybe that was because you grew up in a different church. Maybe that's because you were on vacation to your grandma's house and she made you go to church when you're on vacation. Like, okay, we'll go to your your church grandma. Maybe you've been a, a, a part of a, many other churches. Maybe you've been a member. Of another church or churches in your past, and no doubt you've realized that churches do things very different from each other. And it's possible that at that church you've been to before Grace Community Church, there were some some things that they did there that you just didn't like very much. And so now you come to Grace Community Church and we don't do them. Yeah. But then it's also possible on the flip side of that coin, that at that church you attended before, that they did some things that you really prefer to the way that we do them here at grace and all of that is completely fine all of that is completely normal because not all churches are built for all people and so that's why every christian needs to do their every christian needs to do their due diligence to find the church that is best for them that is right for them now why is there a reason that there's so many differences well Beyond the core construction, the core DNA of a church biblically, there is an enormous amount of freedom that comes then from that core. For instance, what we're doing this morning. The Bible doesn't tell us what we should be doing this morning at all. It's kind of interesting to think about. The Bible doesn't tell us when we should meet. The Bible doesn't tell us where we should meet. The Bible doesn't tell us what we should eat when we meet. Thank you, donuts. The Bible doesn't tell us that we have to do that or shouldn't do that. The Bible doesn't tell us what instruments to use when we sing songs. The Bible doesn't tell us that we need to sing out of books or sing off a screen. The Bible doesn't even tell us that we need to sing during our worship services. Isn't that interesting to think about? The Bible doesn't tell us that we need to hang a cross on the wall the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to have empty walls. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us any of the things that we think are so vitally But Im- The Bible doesn't tell us what we need to wear when we come to church. The Bible doesn't tell us what, what we should, um, what we should uh, do together at all. I know that's weird, Because you had a lot of ideas about what we should do together when you came to church today. The Bible doesn't tell us what language to speak, just so long as we understand each other. And so that's why when you go to a different church, there are some things that you prefer more than others. And that's okay. That's just fine. It's just a personal preference based on something that's not biblical. You're not choosing biblical things. You're just choosing preferences. For instance, I don't attend a Spanish-speaking church because I don't speak Spanish. So it's just practical things. Maybe you have kids, and so you want a church that has a kids' ministry that's safe and fun that your kids like to go to, that one that you can trust. Great. Maybe you would just die if you were in a worship service that was three hours long. And so look, you found a church that didn't have a worship service three hours long, and so... There's a lot of diversity when it comes from these cores, but the purpose of these this series is to talk about the core, the basic building construction that makes a church a church. And last week we started off with the, the title of Why We Exist. And Why We Exist is, is a, an aspect of what a Christian should look for when they are looking for a church to attend. When a Christian looks for a church to attend, the number one question that they should ask is, do they serve full-size donuts for free? That's the first question that they should ask. And so, check, we got that one. The second question that a Christian should ask is, how do they handle God's Word? And we got that last week from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Hopefully, you've already turned there, but you can see it in your Bibles. Paul is writing to Timothy and says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so that is why we exist, to be the pillar and support of the truth, to lift up the Bible, to, to teach the Bible, to treat it as truth, God's revealed truth, unwavering, unmovable, even if we wouldn't say it that way, even if we wouldn't do what do it that way, that is what a biblical local church is. Not only teach the gospel from it, not only teach the part about Jesus being God in the flesh, dying on the cross for sins, and that's so good for people because we are dead in our trespasses, meaning we catch sin when we are born, and then we prove that we caught sin when we do sin, and so we are separated from God because of our sin, and, and Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth and died on the cross our sins. We've been singing about that all morning. Not just that part of Scripture. That's a good part. We lift that part up. But it's not just that part. The part about the Bible that that talks about how the world was created, we lift that part up too. About how the way the world's going to end, we lift that part up too. About the the morality that comes from the Bible, we lift that, that part too. The way a family is supposed to operate, we lift that part up too. Even though we might not say it that way, we lift it up because it's God's Word. That's what a biblical church, this is why a church exists. Now, I know that you're really interested in having a funny pastor and not just a funny-looking pastor. Sorry. I know you're looking for a kid's ministry. I know you're looking for a woman's ministry. I I know that you want one cross on the outside and three crosses on the inside. I I know that you want it to be 73 degrees in every single room year-round, but all of those things pale in comparison to the way that a church handles God's Word. And so that was last week. The church is the pillar in the support of the truth. But just believing in the Bible is not enough. A church needs to understand what it says and apply it or obey it or do it. Now, the good news is that to apply God's word, it doesn't take like a rocket scientist to do that. Because if that were the case, we only have two men in the room they could do that, Pastor Chuck and an elder Greg McKee. These are the only two men that are rocket scientists. The rest of us, we couldn't do it. But it does not take a rocket scientist degree to apply God's word. That's a good. It doesn't take a high IQ. That's good for me. All it takes is for someone to say that God means what he says, and he says what he means. That's all it takes is a humble person to say God says what he means, and he means what he says. And there are a lot of churches that say they are a Bible-believing church. They have Bible verses in their statements of faith. They have pastors that graduated from great seminaries. And yet, they don't take the Bible seriously. And the way that you know that a church takes a Bible seriously is the way that that church follows the directions in the Bible. That's how you know. The way that a Christian knows... If a church is a biblical church, if they are lifting up God's truth, is the way that they follow that biblical direction. And so today we move from why we exist to the function of a church, the operations of a church. Paul didn't just write Timothy that you've turned to. Paul also wrote to other churches as well. Paul wrote to a church in Corinth several times. And this is what he wrote in this church, which would apply to Timothy's church in in Ephesus and would apply to Grace Community Church as well. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 14. He said, But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Yeah, that's true. That everything in a church must be done properly. In an orderly manner. Now, whose orderly manner is that? That's the question. Whose orderly manner? Who defines the orderly manner? Now, at Grace Community Church, our orderly manner is not constructed from church history, from tradition. Probably when you came to Grace for the very first time, as I did, you noticed that we don't do a lot of things that are just traditional that are traditional in a church, the way that, the way that we do baptism or the, the way that we hold our communion services or the way that we select our leaders in our church is all very non-traditional. We, when we look at, at how the church should function, we don't survey other churches in Riverside and ask how they do it and then do that. We don't even ask our congregation how, how, how we think we should do it. If a church wants to be God's church, they are going to allow God's truth to determine how they operate, the, f- the way that it functions. And that's what Timothy, First Timothy, is. Paul, writing to a, a young pastor, his protege, and telling him how the church is to function. And so we got the last couple of verses of 1 Timothy last week, but I think it would be beneficial for us now to study the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's read this passage, and then we'll go back and we'll uh, understand it and how it gets applied in in a church. 1 Timothy 3, let's just begin reading it, verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer is an elder in a church, the role of an elder, the biblical position of an elder within the church, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and a snare of the devil." That is the qualifications of an elder. Now, it moves to another leadership position within the church in verse 8, a different one. Deacons, this is different than an elder or an overseer. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. The qualifications of a deacon. Now we get the qualifications of a third position or role within a church, a deaconess. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own household, for those who have served well with... Uh, served well as deacons, obtained for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So this passage of Scripture sets up several aspects of the DNA of a biblical church, a core construction of a biblical church. One is they are very careful in the way that they select their leaders. It's a careful process. There are things that the rest of the congregation looks for. They they notice them. They see them, and then they identify them, a very careful process of selecting their leaders. Secondly, the leadership structure that is here is upside down. It's it's countercultural. The leaders... The, the, the higher the, the leader is, the more that they serve. That's upside down. The, the higher up on the totem pole you go at a biblical church, the greater sacrifices you are making and the fewer demands that you make on others around you. That's That's not the way that the rest, every, pl- every workplace you came from has someone up top. <laughs> and whatever they say goes, and everyone below them serves them. But that's not the way that it goes when it comes to biblical leadership within a church. The, the ones the highest up, they're not making the most demands, they're doing the most serving. Now, I'd like to look here at these various functions within the church. And I first want to look at the deacons and deaconesses because contrary to popular belief, it was not the elders or the pastors that were selected first for the church. The, the elders or the pastors of the church at the very beginning in Acts, it was the apostles. They were the elders of the church. They were the ones doing the preaching in the church. And so the first area of leadership that was selected from among Christians was the deacons and deaconesses. And that is a really interesting event in history. And so I I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Hopefully you have your fingers in Acts, Acts chapter 6. Now the word deacon, as you're finding it, the word deacon is a Greek word, obviously. It wasn't written in English. It's a Greek word. And the word deacon is diakonos, diakonos and the word diakonos means to wait on tables to wait on tables a waiter or a waitress you wonder now that is a weird term to call someone who is a leader in a church well there's a reason why they're called the deacons the the deacons in the church and we find out why in Acts chapter 6 as the church is beginning to grow. Look at Acts chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose among part of the, uh, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. There is so much wrapped up in that. Okay, so... At the very beginning of the church, at the beginning of Acts, uh, Peter preaches this amazing sermon, really short, and thousands of people get saved. You're wondering, like, how come, Pastor, you don't preach sermons like that? I don't know. I'm trying, okay? I'm trying. Short sermon, lots of people get saved, and people are coming from Jerusalem. They are coming to Jerusalem from all around. Jerusalem is the city center, and as people are coming to Jerusalem, this gospel message that Peter had preached not long before is now beginning to spread, and as people come to Jerusalem, hear the gospel, they get saved. They don't want to go back home. They want to learn more about this newfound faith that they have. And so they don't go home and they begin to build. And this church is, this, is starting to grow in Jerusalem. Now remember, many of these people that are now new Christians are homeless, they don't. Their jobs aren't there. Their homes aren't there. They're somewhere else. And so, all of the Christians that are around are in in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians are trying to k- take care of all these other Jewish now Christians. Take give them food. Try to find them lodging. Uh, communal meals to try to take care of everybody. And so, there was a complaint that arose among a certain group of people here. A, a, uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek-cultured Jewish Christians. And the complaint was, well, our widows aren't, are being missed in this daily serving of the communal food, while the widows of the local Hebrew-Jewish uh, widows were being fed. And so that was the complaint. So verse 2 in Acts 6, it says, So the 12, who are the 12, those are the apostles. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples, meaning all of the Christians, and said, It is not des- desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That's the word diakonos. That's that's the serving of tables. And they say, okay, so we're too busy. We're too busy preaching the gospel, we're too busy uh, praying, we're too busy discipling people to go and address this specific issue of serving the tables within the communal meal. So, verse 3, therefore the elders say, brethren, select from among you, from among the members of the church, from among the congregation, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. What task? The task of waiting on tables. And so now you know why they are called deacons or diakonoses or those who are waiting on tables. So now back, flip your Bibles back now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have these waiters of tables, and really that means they are the servants. They are to serve, that you, you have these these diakonos and their responsibilities are higher than the rest of the membership. And so there were some qualifications that were needed for them more than just being a, a member so that you could serve. Now, this was so countercultural in the Greek culture. So, so, so unnatural in the Greek culture, servants were demeaned. Being a servant was not dignified. It was undignified to be a servant. The idea in the Greek culture was how can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? And so when Jesus comes along, he turns all of this upside down. And this is what Jesus says in, in Luke 22. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called the benefactors, but not so with you. Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who is serving at that table. What an interesting idea. And so these diakonases are uh, the very first position or selected role within the church. And so they were the servants of the church, the helpers of of the church. And so they had these higher qualifications that were required to pick them because they were a higher level of leadership. But as they're a higher level of leadership, they are serving more than everyone else. And so I want to look at the qualifications quickly of these deacons and these deaconesses. So look down at 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. It says, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Dignity just means someone who is worthy of honor, someone who is noble, someone who was dignified. Now, of course, that fits back with Acts 6, where uh, one of the qualifications back then was seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom. Yeah, they needed to have a good reputation. The word dignified in the, in the Greek word is, is referring often to the outward actions of the person, not the inward person, but the outward person. And so this person had a good reputation with other people because they could see that they were dignified the way that they dressed and the way the way that they acted was appropriate for a Christian man they are dignified they are not double-tongued meaning they don't say one thing to one person and then say a different opposite thing to another person they are not addicted to much wine meaning deacons are not those people who get buzzed or drunk if you get buzzed or drunk you, You don't meet the qualification for being a deacon. Not fond of sordid gain, just meaning they're not known for their greed. They are not greedy people, verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That just means that the deacon, that this man is settled in their commitment to the doctrines of God's Word. They're committed to the doctrines in God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean that they can quote them to you verbatim. That doesn't mean that they can answer every question for you just off the top of their head. That does mean, though, that they're committed to God's word as being God's revealed truth. And when they do need to find an answer, they will find it in God's word. Verse 10, these 10 must also first be tested. Now, this is not a test like a, uh, a, 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 a test that you take. This is a time testing their faithfulness to the lord is tested over time that you don't select deacons because of their popularity they're really well known or they have they come from a really good family and so you immediately put them in in your in your deacon pool or your deacon board this isn't a a testing like other other people have have popularized them it's not it's not that kind of testing it's time. Their faithfulness has been seen, tested over time. It's not that they just show up to church with a really good resume and then you just place them in as a deacon. This isn't someone who gives a lot of money and so you just place them in as a deacon. They are tested over time for their faithfulness. And then, as you finish that verse, first these men must also be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Meaning, if they meet all of these qualifications, that are on this list. Now, of course, the leaders in a church are always coming under attack. Uh, Satan would love nothing better than to give uh, Jesus Christ a black eye, and since Satan can't punch Jesus in the face, he will find humans to do that for him by disqualifying them. And so, it is important for a deacon to make sure that he is always above reproach. This does not mean perfect. No one can be perfect. It just means clean squeaky clean. There's no one can, can get a hold of that deacon in any of these areas that are listed and say, look, he's not qualified, he's undignified, or he's, he's a drunk. He, he, th- that's not, and so that's why you test over long periods of time to see that, that person's faithfulness. Then they can be a deacon if they've proven themselves, that they've met the qualifications that are here in, in Scripture. Let's keep going. Um, verse 12 Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, meaning that they are loyal to their wife. This does not require a deacon to be married, but if they are married, they are known as a one-woman man. They are not known as a man with a wandering eye, if you know what I mean. They are not known as a man who's flirtatious with other women when his wife's not around. He is a one-woman man. And finally, there at the end of verse 12, they are good managers of their children and of their own household. That they have to be able to discipline their children and control their family, still being dignified. You can't very can't very well go beat up your kids at home and then come to church and say, hey, everything's great. And there is no one who knows a man better than his wife and his kids. And so they have a big impact on the type of deacon that he is going to be. And these are the qualifications that a church is to look for within a man to select him as a deacon or to not make him a deacon. This is the list of qualifications. Now, we also know that there is an office of deaconess here in the Bible because verse 11 says women, not just the wives of deacons. If it was just, you know, uh, that, that, that it was just only deacons, and describing then the further aspect of the deacon home, they, he would have said the wives of deacons. But it doesn't say that. It says women must likewise. And so it gives some criteria here to notice or to look for in women that you would select as the usses, <laughs> in the in the church. Now, the women get one verse. The men get 12. But... The women must be dignified. That sounds familiar to you because that was the same qualification of the, the deacon. That was the same qualification that was given all the way back by the apostles in that very first church. They need to be people of good reputation. They are, they, 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 they are seen by other people. Their actions and the way that they dress is seen as someone who is, that is appropriate for a Christian woman. Dignified. Not malicious gossips. Oh, this is an important one. And the reason that this is in here is because the biblical structure of a church is that the older women will be teaching the younger women. The older women will be training the younger women how to raise their kids, how to love the Lord, how to love their husbands. That's from Titus. And so a, a, de- a deaconess will end up being a confidant of other women within the church, appropriately. Appropriately. And so it's important that that woman, who now has this confidence of other women, that 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 confidence would be seen in her trustworthiness of holding the, the divulged information, holding it to themselves, and not gossiping that information to other people that can kill a church, that has killed churches. You know, there is an inseparable link between... The quality of the deacon, deaconess, and elder, and the quality of the church. Inseparable link. When you have quality selected well biblically, deacons, deaconesses, and elder, you will have a wonderful church. But if you do not use this biblical criteria for finding your deacons, deaconesses, and elders, and you use other criteria that are understandably more popular than this, it will be seen in the church. And this is one of those areas that can tear apart a church if you have a deaconess that is gossiping. But let's keep going here. Uh, they are temperate. That just means that they're able to think clearly. And they are faithful in all things. I almost say this like it's almost like a du- double negative. There, there is no hint of them not being faithful in in their areas of ministry to women within the church. There's no hint of them not being faithful to ministry to women within the church. And so these are the qualifications that a church is to use in their careful selection of their servants in the church. But they are leaders, but they are serving. And I know that's counterintuitive, but not to Christ, but it was counterintuitive to the culture. Now, as I mentioned, the deacons and deaconesses were the first chosen officers within the church because the elders had already been selected. They were the apostles. But, of course, as the apostles died off, now a church needed some qualifications to select an elder within a church or an overseer within the church. Now, the qualifications for an elder are even higher. The, the qualifications for an elder are, yes, the qualifications of a deacon... But then there are even more qualifications that are piled on top of that because the elder is the highest human authority within the church. Of course, under the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. And so the elder is the highest human authority within a church, and yet they are the greatest servants. They are the chief servants of the church. The elders sacrifice more than the members and the deacons and deaconesses. They spend more time in serving the members of the church than the members do each other or the deacons and deaconesses do of the rest of the membership. They pray for their church more than the members do or the deacons and deaconesses do. They have a greater sacrifice and service for the church. They make fewer demands for the church body than anybody else within the church because they are the chief leaders, and yet they are also the chief servants. And so we don't have time to go through each one in nuance, but this is an upside-down kind of leadership structure, but this is the biblical leadership structure within a church. But I want to just want to point out a couple of the qualifications of an elder that, that could be confusing Or maybe unclear, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. We've already talked about that one, meaning they're tested over time to see if they meet the qualifications that are outlined here. If they are not above reproach in these qualifications, then they're not an elder. They should not be selected as an elder. But then a husband must be... uh, must be the husband of one wife. Now, this is just like the deacons in that they are a one-woman man. Uh, If they are married, they are known as a one-woman man. But there's even more to it than just that. That means that this role of an elder is a male, is a man. A woman cannot be the husband of one wife. Now, I know that that might ruffle some feathers. We're going to talk a little bit further about the roles of men and women within the biblical constructed church. We'll talk about that in a few weeks from now, so if you have questions about that, we'll get there. But this is a man who, if he is married, he is known as a one-woman man. Often the question comes up also, well, can this man be divorced, have ever been divorced in the past? And some churches, understandably, would say no, that an elder within a church could never have been divorced in the past because that means that they are no longer a one-woman man. However, we don't hold non-Christians to the standards <laughs> of a biblical mature person. Think about this. Do you think that there are any deacons or deaconesses that could rise to all of the qualifications without Christ? No. Or do you think that, there, that it's possible for a woman to have been a gossip in the past, but since they put their faith and trust in Christ, growing and maturing Christ now no longer a gossip? Does that mean that that woman is unqualified to be a deaconess because she gossiped one time back when she was 16? And so I, th- the apostles couldn't even ever qualify as apostles <laughs> if they went back in, in their life and found the one thing where they were disqualified. And so this does not mean that a man could never have been divorced. This means that this man is a one-woman man since they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now growing in maturity in Christ, he is now known as a one-woman man. Let's look at some others that could be uh, unclear. Um, oh, later on in that, in that same verse, in verse 2, hospitable. Hospitable does not mean that that elder invites you over to his house for a barbecue. And if he has never invited you over to his house for a barbecue, that means he's not qualified because he's not hospitable. That's not what this means. The Greek word here for hospitable, the Greek word means stranger lover that's a weird way to say it, a stranger lover. Now, that would make sense if you understood what was happening in Acts as the church was beginning. When the church was beginning, there were no like church buildings like we have now. They met in homes, in members' homes. And if the elders or the chief servants, often the elders would offer up their home to be the place where they would meet. And so as they welcomed in all of their friends and their family, that elder would also make sure that they would be, that that congregation and their home would be open to outsiders as well, strangers. That other Christians, people who put their faith in Christ, didn't have a church home, that they were welcomed into that church family. Or even people who had not heard the gospel, that they would be able to come in, that they'd be welcomed in so that they could hear the gospel of Christ and get saved and get discipled. And it would be the elder that would lead the church in that. They would be a stranger lover, an outsider lover. And so then the rest of the church then would follow the elder in that example of being welcoming to the strangers, to the outsiders, into their group. And, and, and Grace Community Church has always been good at that. I think the reason that we've always been good at welcoming outsiders is because we've all been there, you know? We've all been the outsider. We know what it's like to not know what it's like, and oh man, what are they going to do when they get there, and how are they going to do that? Uh, is, 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 am I ever going to find any friends? Are going to be anybody like me? And Will anybody say hi to me? Will anybody ever know my name? And we know that, and so we follow our elders in being welcoming to outsiders. And I know that's kind of hard when you have your own little homogeneous group. It's kind of hard to uh, welcome someone who stole your seat on Sunday morning. But what do they know? They're a stranger. And so there are a lot of things that we do at Grace Community Church, as directed and funded by the elders, that are to welcome people who are outsiders so that they could become insiders in Christ. So they're hospitable. Let's see here. What else could be... Even the next one, able to teach. That, that, That one could sometimes... Uh, that could be interpreted or some interpret that as that every elder must be able to stand up on a stage in front of a pulpit and be able to uh, clearly uh, teach God's word for uh, 50 minutes uh, unhindered. And if you can't do that, then you don't qualify as an elder. But now an elder might have that as a spiritual gift that he has, an ability to teach, but that's not what this is referring to here an elder's life, his entire life is a model. His entire life is a teaching model for other Christians within the church to know how they should live. And that is what would disqualify an elder is if his life is not exemplary of how the rest of Christians should follow him in his life. And so this is one way that an elder sacrifices or submits or serves the rest of the church. An elder will modify or temper his life to make sure that his life is something that everyone in his church can follow or can, can, his life can be teachable. He, he restricts things that he could be free to do. He, he doesn't do them because he wants to make sure that everyone in the church family could follow his lifestyle. Now, I have only used one example for this. I'm still going to continue to use the same one example just so that my goal here is not to brag about what I'm tempering in my life for you. But I just want to use one example so you understand how an elder restricts his lifestyle, not because he's required to, but because he loves the body and wants nothing but the best for them, and he wants his life to be the example for everyone in the church. Now, I have chosen not to drink alcohol. None. Now, uh, Obviously, we know in Scripture that getting drunk, getting buzzed, is wrong. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So getting drunk is wrong, and if a man is getting drunk, he does not qualify as a deacon or an elder. But I don't drink because I have the propensity to get drunk, and so I want to keep away from it. I, I have restricted myself from drinking for other reasons. Now, we understand biblically that drinking alcohol outside of getting buzz or drunk seems to be an area of liberty in Scripture, that a Christian has a, the, the freedom to make that choice for themselves. And so there are some Christians at Grace Community Church that have a glass of wine at, at dinner, as long as that glass of wine does not make them buzz or drunk. Well, it seems to be that there's an area of liberty in that. And so an elder will... Notice those kind of things say, they have the freedom to do it, but I've decided not to drink alcohol. I've decided not to have any wine bottles in my home or in my refrigerator because I want my life to be an example for everyone who ends up at my house. And I don't want someone to open up the refrigerator, and me not knowing their history, to open up the refrigerator, and them having gone through the 12 steps 20 years ago, and them being clean from alcohol for 20 years, them open my refrigerator and say, oh yeah, I I, I get that Christians can drink, maybe now I've been done for so long and the pastor does anyway, maybe I could too. And me unintentionally, unknowingly leading someone else into... A, 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 a depravity that they have a propensity to that they've beaten by God's grace and now leading them back into it I'd, ha- I'd, I'd never want that to happen I'd never want a teenager to come into my house and open the refrigerator and, and see some alcohol there and say oh well I mean it must be okay I just don't want and so there's nothing would be nothing wrong for me or any elder to to drink alcohol. There's nothing wrong with that. But an elder will temper their lives, restrict their lives, not because they have to or required to, but they want nothing but the best for the church family when my family goes out to eat. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, we say four to the you know you know person at the front, you know, that's doing the seating. They take out four menus and they walk us to someplace in the restaurant. And sometimes they'll take us to, you know, the little section there where there's the bar and then all the tables around the bar and it's kind of separated out. And so we get over there and I'm like, I'm sorry, but um, I prefer to wait than sit in here. And it's not, there's nothing immoral about sitting in there, nothing. There's nothing wrong with being in there. There's no sin or immorality in being there. But I just don't want someone from Grace Community Church, who I shepherd, to come in and for them to have such bad memories from uh, their home growing up and being in that section or what their dad would do in that section, the smells in that section. I would never want them to come in and be driven to some sort of thing that that is a a wrong thing for them to do. Well, I mean, guess the pastor does it, so I guess it's okay for us to do when it's really against their conscience to do it. And so, in this area, or in many other areas, an elder will restrict his life as a benefit to the church family. His life is able to teach. Does that make sense? All right. I could go on in all these, but I think we kind of not a new convert. That one's there down in verse six. Not a new convert. An elder has to be seasoned over time. You know, life like life has a way of humiliating you. Have you noticed that? (laughs) That just over time, life puts you in your place. And and generally what happens is you grow more humble because of that. And and so you don't want an elder that's too young, that hasn't been humbled yet, and then them being put in the place of an elder, then they would be conceited and now begin to lord it over you. You wouldn't want that. Now unfortunately, that happens in a lot of churches. But you but but elders are not to be lording it over anybody. The, the, the elders are the chief servants of the church. They're not the chief dictators of the church. They're the chief servants of the church. Because remember the leadership structure is upside down. And it takes a mature man to understand the, the difference between being the CEO, and being a chief servant, being an an elder in the church. And so Timothy gives these instructions, these outlines for this church to follow. And the process that a church follows will determine if it's God's church or if it's the world's church. And so this is why we don't ask other churches and how they... Pick their deacons, deaconesses, and elders. This is why we don't do it like probably most of the churches that you came from. did it. These are the qualifications. These are what we look for. Now, you might not like the person for a thousand other reasons. <laughs> I get that. They might drive a, an import car, and how unpatriotic is that? They might drink Starbucks coffee, and how immoral and nasty is that? You might not like where they send their kids to school. You might not like what movies they watch. You might not like the fact that they don't have any dogs as pets. But those aren't the qualifications. These are the qualifications that Paul gives for a church to be able to select good men and good women as leaders in their church. Now remember... The church is the pillar and support of the truth, unwavering in all aspects of that, not just the gospel of Christ, that too, but in all aspects, including the way that a church is to function or to operate in the offices that are outlined here. And so the way that you know if a church is, is lifting up the truth is the way that they follow the instructions, the way that they are obedient to what it says. And so Grace Community Church applies this in a pretty clear way. Now, many of you in here have already already seen this uh, graph, and so I'll spend about three minutes on this. But there are some people in here who have not. This is the way that Grace Community Church applies that, that we not only believe the bible we implemented in this area of the operations of our church now the the way that most of you when you came from work uh, over the week this is what it was like you had the ceo on top and there was someone else somewhere in between and probably you're somewhere in between and you are working out all of what the CEO rolls down to you. <laughs> you do what they say, you're serving the CEO. And this is the typical corporate structure right here where everybody on the bottom is serving everyone on top. However, Christ's model, the biblical model, is just upside down from that. And so when people come and visit Grace Community Church, they, they have no skin in the game. They've spent no money at Grace Community Church, no time praying for the church, no time serving in the church. A, a, a guest just shows up. You remember the first time that you came to Grace? You just parked over here in a great clean parking lot. You didn't clean it. You didn't worry about it. You just walked right in. You ate it. You didn't pay for any donuts. You didn't pay for any coffee. You just enjoyed it. And then you put your kids and kids. You didn't pay for any childcare. You just received it. You came in here and you got heat. You didn't pay for the heat. You sat here. You enjoyed the worship service. You get back in your car you go back home, eat lunch, and complain about the church service. It's so great. No responsibility, nothing at all. It's so wonderful being a guest. No restrictions of your own life, nothing. And then some of those guests will then decide that they want to attend more often. They become regular attenders, friends of the family. And so they become even a little bit more committed here because they begin to attend regularly and they often begin to give sacrificially, give generously to the church. And so now here they are restricting their own lives. They're giving of their own money for the, for the benefit of the church body. And they're giving their money so that the, the, the people on top can come for free. It, it's upside down. The, the, the ones who are committed are serving the ones who are uncommitted. It's upside down but this is, the, this is the model, this is the biblical model. But when you're a regular attender, you don't have the capacity to, to select our deacons or deaconesses or elder because you're not a, a part of the family. You're not a member of the grace family. And so then those friends of the family who attend regularly over time then finally might become a part of the membership family. And then there are many restrictions that a person a, Voluntarily agrees to to restrict their lives for the benefit of the people above them. They commit to uh, to, to to submitting to the elder leadership in the church, they agreed to sacrificially, financially support the ministries here at Grace. They agreed to use their skills, gifts, and abilities to serve in ministry. So now we have, so now here in membership in the family, now we're serving in ministry. So people who are serving, who are giving, who are committed, who are submitting to the elder leadership, and they're doing all of that for the people above them who have none of those commitments at all. It's upside down. But that's the, that's the biblical model And then from that church family. Now, the the church family, they're the ones that select the deacons and the deaconesses and the elder. They're a part of the family. Just like Acts 6, the elder said, hey, from all the disciples here, from all the people of this church in Jerusalem, you select from among you people who are going to be the deacons. And so that's exactly what happens. The deacons and deaconesses are pulled from the selected from the family based on the criteria that we've seen today. And now, the deacons and deaconesses have even a higher level of responsibility, a higher commitment level. They are sacrificing more. Remember, they are the servants in the church. They are the helpers in the church. They are serving in almost every single in every single ministry. Here at Grace Community Church, we have deacons and deaconesses that make our church what it is. Our church would not be the same if it weren't for the deacons and deaconesses. But they've now restricted themselves even more because they, they love the body, because they, they, they want outsiders to become a part, because they, because they love Christ and they love the message that is coming from grace Church they're invested in this. And so they serve those that are above them that have absolutely much less commitment than they do. And then from those deacons, then those deacons are tested over long periods of time, and that is where we find our elders. Our elders then are selected from our deacons, and now they have even more restrictions. They restrict their lives to be teachable. They commit more time to Grace Community Church in many ways, ways that often you don't see, to Grace Community Church for your own protection spiritually. And they are serving the church. They are the, the chief servants within the church. They, they, have, they, have the, they have the most commitment, they have the most time in, probably the most money into Grace Community Church, and yet they've restricted their lives more than anyone else for the service of the church all those that are above them. This is the way that it is applied from what we've read. Now, of course, the elders are not the, the greatest servant in the church. Who's the greatest servant to the church? Of course, that's Jesus Christ. There's never been anyone that has been more sacrificial in his service to us than Jesus Christ himself. By, by leaving heaven, he didn't give up his divinity, but he gave up his glory for sure. He gave the glory of heaven to he be born in, the, in a manger. And then his sacrifice was seen as he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law. Making himself the perfect sacrifice so that when he dies on the cross, he dies not for his sin, but he dies for mine. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. This is the way that he sacrificed for us 2,000 years ago. But that's not the only sacrifice that Jesus Christ does. Today, remember after he, he died, he buried, he rose from the grave, and now he's in heaven today. The Bible tells us today that he's in heaven. And he listens to our prayers. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his ministry to us today. He is the chief servant for us today. And so, this is the way that, that a biblical church will apply what, what they know. And so, a church can say that they're biblical, but the way that you're going to know, if it is a biblically, it has a biblical course of the church, not only do they talk about lifting up the Bible, not only do they say they believe the Bible. But it is in the way that they apply it, the way that they follow it. Now, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'd love, for you to, I'd love for you too. You've heard who Jesus Christ is. He died on the cross for your sins. The Bible says that's a good thing because we are separated from God because of our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, in Jesus, having him remove your sin... Today's the day where you can do that. I'm going to give you the opportunity. Would you be willing to bow your heads, all of you? Whether you're, you might already know you're going to heaven. I know most of your stories, and most of you know you're going to heaven. But there's someone here who may not. You may not know that person sitting next to you well enough. And so if you just give them a chance to consider these things for just a moment. If you've never put your faith in Christ, today could be the day. All you do is you talk to him about this. It's called Prayer. This is what you could say. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin. And I believe that matters because he was God that was born on earth. I believe that not only did he die on the cross for my sin, I believe that three days later he rose from the grave, the impossible thing. And I believe that Jesus is in heaven today. And I can go to heaven too when I put my trust in him. I believe that Jesus' death will remove my sin, that he paid for my sin, and I put my trust, my faith in this Jesus. Well, God, we do thank you for all that you have done for our church. Thank you for your provision for us in so many ways. In giving us your word of truth that gives us direction, and also giving us your son, which gives us the eternal direction of heaven. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.